Hello, whether it is good morning, good afternoon or good evening, hello. I'm Nadia Taylor and I'm the chair of Carers Network as well as the chair of the Carers Forum in Hammersmith and Fulham. For those of you who don't know much about us, Carers Network is a charity which supports unpaid informal carers. We are based in central London and support carers in the boroughs of Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea and Hammersmith and Fulham. We have recently started a series of podcasts on a range of topics and this is the third in the series. Today we meet our third guest in this series and I would like to introduce to listeners Andy Slaughter MP. Welcome Andy. Hello, Nadia, as you say, good morning, good afternoon or, or whatever. Just it's a real pleasure to be with you and talking to you and hopefully we're going to have an interesting chat that will be um, uh, useful to some of your listeners. Thanks Andy and lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today and participate in our podcast. Just to introduce Andy briefly, for those of you who don't know him, Andy is the Labour Member of Parliament for Hammersmith. He was elected in 2005 and in addition to representing constituents in Shepherd's Bush and Hammersmith and Fulham, he has served as Shadow Minister for Justice, for Human Rights and for Housing. He was formerly a barrister practising housing and personal injury law and from 1996 to 2005, leader of Hammersmith and Fulham Council. Andy's well known to many of our carers from Hammersmith and Fulham because sometimes, prior to COVID-19 of course, during Carers Week in June, Andy kindly takes time from his busy schedule to meet carers visiting the Houses of Parliament as part of our Carers Week events. So it is really lovely to have contact with Andy again in what has been an extraordinary year. Today's topic is naturally carers and the challenges they face in the context of living through the pandemic and lockdown, but not exclusively. Andy, perhaps we can start with your thoughts on what the coronavirus and lockdown have meant for your constituents, particularly those who are unpaid carers. How are you able to maintain your surgery and keep in contact with your constituents? And what problems unpaid carers in particular have sought assistance from you for, if any? Well, Nadia, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to comment on the, uh, the role of uh, carers during the pandemic. But perhaps I could just start by saying that, as you say, I I've have regular contact. Carers Week is, is a fantastic event, but obviously through casework and through surgeries and just through you know, events and, and, and going to functions around the borough, contact with carers uh, the year round. And it, it's a common theme, as you will know better than anyone, that carers are always under pressure. Um, by definition, unpaid carers are getting by, that they are selflessly giving so much of their own lives to look after other people. So I think it's, it's of course, COVID is, is, a, is a problem for everybody, but I think it's a particular issue for carers because it's, it's A, putting that additional strain on them for what is often already difficult and stressful situations. And secondly, it's removing a lot of the support that is there. And sometimes there isn't a lot of support, but you know, the statutory services and a lot of charitable organizations and of course people like yourself do a lot to give support to carers. So I think what I find quite heartbreaking really is when carers are contacting me because they are in more than usual difficulty, but they are getting less than usual assistance um, and we are therefore reliant even more both on the, the networks that are already there but also those that have sprung up to help all people in need but but including carers during the pandemic. 
Yes, I mean you, you're quite right. Uh, it, it is very concerning um, what uh, what what is happening, and and it is difficult for all of us. But uh, as chair of the Carers Forum in Hammersmith and Fulham, I receive a lot of feedback from carers, and I have to say the impact of COVID has been devastating for carers. I mean, isolation has increased. There have been difficulties with requesting and obtaining repeat prescriptions for the cared for. Accessing GP services generally has been very challenging. Many hospital appointments and treatment have been cancelled. Domiciliary, podiatry, physiotherapy, occupational therapy appointments have been drastically reduced or cancelled. Many carers who have been in part-time employment have lost their jobs despite government assistance schemes. Even the reduction in the hours during which the elderly can use their freedom pass has had a very negative impact, where operations and chemotherapy treatments have been allowed to go ahead. Patients are generally required to be at the hospital very early in the morning and often hospital transport has not been available. So patients have missed out on vital treatment because bus drivers would not allow them on board. There I ask whether you think such measures have been carefully thought out by the government and local authorities, given the impact these are having on the community. And and to what extent are the problems that people are experiencing being discussed in Parliament? I mean, members of Parliament are public representatives. So can you tell us to what extent you take into account feedback from the public and, and does public opinion and shared experience influence MPs' decisions and the way they vote on legislation? Well, let me start by saying there is absolutely no shortage of discussion of what's going on or indeed of communication. Now, you're right to say, obviously, face-to-face communication has dropped off completely. I, I don't do, uh, as I used to do every week, face-to-face surgeries. But because most people now have access to it can be the telephone, but certainly mainly through email. Um, we've found that our casework, uh, our level of contact from the public, has gone up by about 50%. And in some months, we're dealing with uh, myself, myself and my small staff with up to 5,000 casework or policy inquiries, which is, which is really unprecedented. But it's obviously useful in getting mm. a complete picture of what is going on and the pressures that are on people, including carers. And yes, we take that message to the government. And every week, there are debates in Parliament. And the other things that we do here, questions and statements and calling ministers to to come to the uh, the House and, uh, and, and give an account of themselves. So government equally is in no, can be under no illusion about the pressures that you've talked about are really out there. And if I'm honest, no, the response hasn't been brilliant. Now, I say, and it's not my job, I'm an opposition politician to defend the government. I will say that these are unprecedented times. And they had, I think, initially an objective, as we know, in the first lockdown of making sure the NHS kept going, making sure that people weren't going to die because of lack of beds or lack of uh, ventilators or things of that kind. That was successful. They then had an objective of stopping mass unemployment and mass business failure through furlough and other schemes. And largely that's been successful thus far with some caveats. The problem is that's as far as it's gone. And the rest of, um, uh, uh, if you like, the whole social network and economic network that we rely on has failed pretty badly. I, I, I will exempt from that a lot of what's happened locally. Actually, locally, um, in Hamilton and Fulham, which is obviously what the area I know best, there's been a very good response, a good response in terms of 
things like testing in terms of safeguarding people in care homes, in terms of the NHS response. But what we're finding increasingly, and we're finding even more so in a second lockdown now, is there are what we call gaps in support. Um, And that could be gaps in support economically, but it could be exactly as you've said, in terms of giving that necessary practical support people and also failings from some of our institutions and you mentioned i might if you want me to say a bit more about this in a minute about what's happened in the health service where the focus has been so much on covid that other parts of the service have necessarily fallen down and got into delay yes i mean thank you andy it's uh, it's refreshing to hear your honest thoughts on um on the situation it is incredibly difficult for all of us um There is no denying that the pandemic has had a devastating impact on societies worldwide in terms of bringing about socio-political and economic problems. But crucially, it has also highlighted the pressing needs of the most marginalised communities, of which I fear unpaid carers are a significant part. There are six and a half million of us in the UK, and our number is expected to increase 60% by 2030. I'm a carer myself and have been for over 20 years, and I believe it is high time to address the lack of state support for basic healthcare costs, including dental and eye care, as well as assistance with transport costs for unpaid carers. We are often described as a hidden workforce whose economic contribution is set to be around £132 billion a year, yet we are only worth £67.25 per week in carers' allowance. That is about one eighty nine an hour. I would also like to point out that many unpaid carers in England, where, as you know, prescriptions are not free for everyone, struggle to pay for their prescriptions, mm-hmm. dental and eye care, or get any help at all with transport costs because they fall outside the exemption based on age and benefit entitlement. No government action plan so far has made provisions for desperately needed financial assistance for unpaid carers, considering that we are excluded from the provision of the minimum wage. And despite the Care Act recognising our role, we are not protected by a statute and are the only workforce not entitled to any holiday, sick pay or any assistance with healthcare and transport costs. I'm very keen to hear your reflections on these issues and particularly whether hearing firsthand of the plight of unpaid carers arouses your interest in setting up or perhaps participating in an all-party parliamentary group that will task itself with reviewing the provisions for unpaid carers and perhaps offering a clearly much-needed reform, addressing and remedying the problems I have just highlighted. Thanks for that, Nadia, because I think what you've done is, is very succinctly encapsulated the main issues around carers, which which were there before COVID, but which COVID has accentuated. Absolutely. And if I want to, the thing I find most surprising is that um, this is not, and a lot of what you do, a lot of very worthy and needy causes as an MP, you come to fresh. You have to learn about it from, from scratch. It's not something which you have experience of. I, as you say, there are over 6 million carers, and I doubt that there are many people, many MPs, many people in government, who don't have a direct experience. They may have been a carer themselves, or, or somebody in their family has been, has needed care, or has provided care in that way. So that's why I find it a, a bit surprising that we've let things get to the state that they are, and exactly the problems you talk about, which is effectively discrimination against carers, not giving them the support that they need to do the work they do. And it's quite difficult to explain why that is the case. 
I think probably it's because carers just get on with it, partly because they have to and partly because, you know, through compassion and love for the people they're, they're, they're caring for, they just, they have to do that. And they would they have to but they would also rather spend their time doing that than if you like um banging the table and quite rightly asking for more support and uh, and better rights from society i think that has got to change i think we have got to look again at, at the way that not just financial support but the way that society supports carers because we're all at some time in our lives going to be either a carer or somebody needing care. It's very unlikely that we're not going to be in that position. And it seems incredibly short-sighted the way that we're we're behaving at the moment. The problem is that COVID has not only made things a lot worse for carers in the way we've, we've talked about, but it's, it's a massive distraction from many of the other problems that we needed to deal with. Yes, I mean you, you're quite right, and and uh, and again, thank you so much for, for for taking these issues on board in the way that that you are. It's it's very encouraging. Um, I mean, these things are very close to my heart as, as a full time carer, and it is very much a a, a life changing experience. It's a, it's a choice, um, as you say, but but often you feel there isn't a choice. It's something that you have to do because the assistance simply isn't there. I mean, you know, these are issues that concern a large number of unpaid carers um, whose caring roles come at a great personal cost and often at the expense of their own health. Uh, I mean, we have to remember that many carers between the ages of 25 and 60 are in single income households where one person is financially responsible for several adults and children. Mm. If the family cares for aging parents as well, as is often the case nowadays. Now, these families will really struggle because help is currently only available to those with an annual income of £16,000. Now, that's an incredibly low amount of money, and I think it's a totally unrealistic threshold, considering that the take-home pay from such an income is um, is around £1,200 a month, Mm -hmm. and the average rent for, say, a two-bedroom flat in London is over £1,000 a month according to figures from the GMB trade union. So Mm. let us also bear in mind that such households with really serious caring responsibilities may experience additional hardships. For example, if they have adolescent children, uh, I mean, I myself am in this situation as well, um, so I know it firsthand, but imagine if if a household such as this um, has adolescent children who, upon reaching 18, may no longer be in full-time education which again may be due to the inability of such households to afford university fees, they will not be eligible for benefits while they remain in their parents' home. If the annual household income is, say, thirty or even £50,000, the state will deem them ineligible for benefits. Now, if several family members, including these adolescents, require regular medication, the household faces a, a considerable monthly prescription bill despite being on a low income, never mind dental charges, uh, you know, glasses and all that. Sadly, it seems that none of these factors are taken into account by the NHS, clinical commissioning groups or the government itself when policies and action plans are drawn up. Therefore, as naive as this may sound, any support and intervention um, that um, people like yourself can give us would be much, much appreciated. I mean, these 
issues um, are very concerning, aren't they? Um, and it is a shame that um, so little seems to have been done so far. I mean, we do feel very much abandoned, which is a terrible thing to feel in this day and age in a country as great as ours. So um, I just sort of wondered what your reflections are on this. Well, I, I think, again, you put it very eloquently, what the, what the, the problem is, because and let, let, let's talk about the financial situation because it's it's there are several elements to it. Now, there's first of all, there there is obviously quite rightly carers talk about the, the fact that they are underpaid or not paid uh, and not receiving anything like uh, really quite a, a derisory amount sometimes Indeed. In, in order to do what is a very difficult job, an incredibly stressful and often twenty four seven job. Um, and to do and you know, quite a complicated and difficult job to do, uh, looking after somebody, even if it's a you know it, it's a, it's a partner or, or close family member, but that ignores the fact that you've also got, as you've indicated, the additional costs often, whether you say that's prescriptions, whether it's travel, whether it, you know it's just extra equipment or extra help that you need, the fact that you can't live your life exactly as you want to and and take advantage yes. of, of opportunities in the other way. But then there's also a third factor, which is often people have to give up work entirely or cut down their hours in order to do that. That's right. So they are reducing their household income in order to be a carer. So it's a sort of triple whammy in that way. That's what happened to, to but, us, actually. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I don't really see that being taken account of. If, where, if there is any response, and it's pretty inadequate, it's a very piecemeal response that you get. So government will pay lip service, if you like, to the fact that it's mm. happening. And it will point to benefits or uh, other sources of funding that are generally available. But there's very little that is specifically designed to, for the, the life-changing events that it, it could be to become a carer for the first time. Uh, and that could then be something that lasts for the rest of your life or certainly for a, a long period of years. You know, these are not these are not short-term commitments. So I, I, I absolutely agree with you. We need somehow to get an appreciation of the overall impact and the overall stresses and pressures that, that, that come, financial included, that come from being a carer. And I don't think we've done that yet. I mean, do, do you think it's, uh, you know, we, we stand a good chance? Is it a good time to, to sort of approach the authorities? I mean, are there mechanisms where, you know, there could be sort of co-production with, uh, with, with carers, whereby, you know, social provisions will really be, be addressed and actually become adequate in this day and age? Well, two two things strike me there. One is that, being positive, there has been a, a huge response from the community to COVID in terms of both charitable fundraising, uh, but also practical help that's being given. And you look in uh, in Hammersmith, there are uh, and through everything from food banks to local networks that have been set up to what the local authority has done through its CAN network. To ins- uh, and obviously the whole shielding process through the first three months of, of lockdown, and you know I, I've I've taken part in a lot of those um, initiatives, uh, whether it's delivering food or whether it's it's um, giving support, giving advice to people there, and it's really quite inspiring to see the way that people have stepped up to the plate in that way. Albeit it's taken this crisis to do that. So what that that says to me that there is a real will in the community to support people who are in need. I think where the gaps have shown is that we've had this rundown of really quite basic public services, including the NHS, but also including affordable housing, 
and the welfare state generally over the past 10 years. And I mean, that's just a fact. I'm not making a party political point there. It's a fact that, that we no, really have right. asset stripped the, um, the things we used to take for granted and rely on for support. And now we absolutely need them. They're not there. So in a way, I think society generally has had more experience of what it must be like to be a carer and what, it, and what is needed in crisis to help people. But at the same time, I'm not sure that the infrastructure is there to actually deliver what we want. And we've seen that in the, even in the response to COVID itself and the failure of test and trace and the, and the failure which I hope is not going to happen in the, in, the, in the second lockdown, but to go back to a point you mentioned earlier when you said that uh, appointments and treatments are not there. Yes. And we've gone locally from a situation where nobody was waiting at the beginning of lockdown, nobody was waiting uh, more than a year for uh, treatment, for surgery or for other necessary treatments, to now where you've got a huge backlog of people. That's, that's and it's right. still going up. Um, but it's often difficult to, sorry to interrupt you there very briefly, it's very difficult to to understand why, because they do see very few patients. I mean, we have had, um, some members of my household have had, uh, obviously, appointments taking place face to face. To face. Um, but it's still, you're still not seeing on time, um, you know, there's, there's so little happening and they don't seem to be as sort of overwhelmed as sort of the press makes out. Are you talking about the, 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 the NHS in particular? Or, or, well, or, GPs, or, or, primary, yeah. primary as well as uh, secondary yeah. care. Yeah, it, it, well, to certainly, I don't want to be overcritical because yeah, this is a, a unique experience in our lifetime. But I do think that by now we should have had a a response to it. We should understand what's going on. Now, I, I'm assured locally by the health service that in in this lockdown and with the and there are increasing numbers of people uh, in intensive care and hospitalised through. COVID at the moment, although not yet up to the levels we saw in March, April, that they are determined to keep other services, whether those are cancer services or just elective surgery and treatments going through this. And they are hoping to be up to 100%, i.e. they were back to where they were before the first lockdown by Christmas. That's good, but it also means it won't be until next year that they actually start eating into the backlog. So I think I think that's right um, that, you know, we had all these Nightingale hospitals set up. We had um, GPs trying to do everything online. And that was a response to the initial lockdown. I think that really we now need we, we know enough about the way the disease works now that we should be able to deal with routine uh, and you know, often quite serious issues that people have with their general yes. health. And if you look at that, terrible death toll that we saw that's just past 50,000, um, there's actually about half as much again of what they call, well, the crude terminology, excess deaths, who are people who died for other reasons than COVID, but a consequence of the health service having to focus on COVID. And that's a pretty stark statistic. Yes. No, it's dreadful, really. But uh, while we're on the subject of, of the NHS and healthcare, as an MP, you are bound to have access to more accurate statistics and detailed information that are publicly that is publicly available. So, to the extent that you're able to share with us, how do you think the NHS is coping through this recent spike of infections, and what might we expect to see from the health service as winter begins? Well, I, I get weekly reports from Imperial, who are who, who run the 
Charing Cross and Hampton's Hospital, as well as as well as um, St Mary's Paddington, uh, they have seen a significant spike in both their admissions and and, and those in intensive care over the past few weeks. But it is still very pretty far below where we were in March April. But again, we, I, we it doesn't look like we've peaked as yet because the hospitalisation lags some weeks behind the infection rates, and we're still, I think, suffering from those. You know what went on in um, in the summer, which now looks as though perhaps we unlocked down a little bit too too quickly. We didn't learn the, the, the lessons properly there. So they are coping. They coped back in March, April, and we're all hoping it doesn't get to that stage again, although it has in some parts of the country. And they are trying very hard, as I, as I said, to keep their other services, which they've now got back up and running, running through this, this second spike. So I'm, I'm quite impressed by what they've done. I worry about GPs. We've now heard that we should, certainly by the new year, be getting this mass uh, immunisation programme for COVID. Yes. But we're, at the moment, we're trying to deal with the, with the flu uh, 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 vaccine. And I worry about the capacity of some of, of our GP services to cope with their ordinary work, flu and COVID, simultaneously over the winter. So that's something which I think uh, uh, which I'm investigating at the moment, and I think we need to put, pay some attention to. Oh, that's that's very interesting. Well, maybe you can uh, once you've completed your findings, you can share those with us as well. I mean, it is there's also an issue of trust. I think people are sort of people, you know, public confidence is affected. People are not always seeing sort of the wisdom in decisions made. And um, but but fingers crossed, we uh, we don't have quite the difficult winter we're all fearing. Um, well. Andy, it has been a real pleasure talking to you today. Um, it has been very, very interesting, very insightful, and thank you so much. Before I say goodbye, I would like to extend two invitations, if I may. Um, I would like to invite you to our Carers Forum, which will convene early next year. Not sure whether on Zoom or face-to-face, but we'll obviously have to see. <laughs> I think if your schedule will allow it, the carers in Hammersmith and Fulham will be delighted to see you again and, and share their experiences with you. Um, also, next year, Carers Network will be celebrating its 30th birthday, and we would be very happy and grateful if you would be able to participate in our celebration. And of course, we have Carers Rights coming up in two weeks' time. So, Andy, I know how busy you are, so thank you once again for taking the time to talk to me uh, and take part in this podcast. Thank you for your honest remarks and interest in Carers Network um, and its work. Take care, keep safe and well. And thank you. Could, could I just add my, just before you get in, could I just add my thanks to you? Um, I, I, I absolutely appreciate what every single carer in the borough and indeed across the country does. But I particularly want to say thank you to you and Carers Network because without the support that you give, things will, people will be in a much worse condition, both practically, but I think also morally and mentally in terms of um, uh, coping with what is a, a really bad crisis i would be delighted to join you at both those events and a it's always a pleasure and it's always a pleasure and i hope you'll be back at the at the commons being shown around <laughs> again uh, s- soon but oh, we very much look also, forward to that <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely vital that you that i am informed and i am making representations to you uh, we will get through this and i hope that then we will focus more on the 
if you like, the longer term issues for carers, uh, because they haven't been, as we've discussed. I've tried to be not too not too downbeat. We, we've got to be honest about the problems we <laughs> face, course. but we also need to celebrate the, the fantastic achievement of carers and the efforts that are going in to beat the crisis we're in at the moment. So thank you very much, Nadia. Well, thank you for your very kind words. Um, it's been a real pleasure. And um, as I said, keep safe. I'm delighted to hear that you'll be able to join us. So uh, we remain positive that uh, COVID will soon be behind us and uh, and we'll be able to meet again. Bye for now. Bye.